There's nothing wrong about being sick. There's nothing wrong about suffering. That for me is the essence, one of the essences of Buddhist practice, is that we start from there. That's not something that happens to us. That's not something that's a flaw. That's the human condition. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ikigai Project. My name is Peter Nakamura, and in today's episode, I speak with Dr. Samit Kumar. Samit is a clinical psychologist, author, and internationally requested speaker. He specializes in helping people who have cancer, grief, and end-of-life concerns. He practices predominantly mindfulness-based therapies to facilitate healing and goal attainment. He's the author of three books, including Grieving Mindfully, A Compassionate and Spiritual Guide to Coping with Loss. Samit and I talk about his origin story and the significant influence his mother had, um, who had experienced the traumatic partition of India, and the lessons he learned at an early age from his mother. We spend time talking about grief and the experience he has had working with patients through the process and how he's seen grief become part of their identity. We talk about mindfulness meditation as medicine to ease suffering and how we can hold sadness just a little bit better in our lives. And finally, we talk about practical ways we can introduce mindfulness and how we can be better with others who may be grieving. You know, for me, grief is one of those topics that we don't think about until something happens, whether that's a loss of a loved one or the end of a relationship or the change of a lifestyle for one reason or another. And if the global pandemic has provided any lessons for us to learn, it's that things can change and we need to get better at understanding and, and being with suffering. And as Samit talks about in the interview, a part of the package of the human existence. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Samit. Samit. He's a fabulous storyteller and someone I can probably listen to for hours, just, just talk and share stories. Uh, so I know, I, I know you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Samit Kumar. Well, Samit, thank you so much for being a part of the Ikigai Project. I'm really excited to have you here. You came through a recommendation from a friend who took your, your program as part of a, a mindfulness course, and she had nothing but amazing things to say about your specific work in, in grief and mindfulness. And um, grief is just one of those topics that I'd never really put my finger on before. Um, fortunately, because I haven't you know, lost anybody in my immediate family and I associate grief with loss, death. Um, yeah. But I know it's more than that. And I want to have this conversation with you to find out you know, what is grief in our lives? How do we better relate to it and, and find that space within ourselves to, to um, appreciate it a little bit more, uh, if that's the right word to use. Yeah. But before we do, um, Samir, I'm so curious about your origin story and how you got into this world of grief and mindfulness and, and maybe even take us back to your childhood. Where, where did you grow up? Sure, um, sure. And yeah, just a bit of that background story. So I'm definitely a planetary citizen. I was born in India and um, I lived there until I was five in Punjab in a, in a beautiful city called Chandigarh, a planned city, which is unusual in India. Um <laughs> And then when I was five, we moved to the Bronx in New York City, and this is in the late 70s, so it was definitely not a gentrified Bronx that you might hear about today. There's nothing hip about it. There's graffiti everywhere and just not very safe. And um, our point of pride was that a series of movies called Death Wish, was they were set 
and filmed uh, close to where we were. So it was quite different. And then we moved um, within the Bronx. We moved to Riverdale uh, right before I started middle school, which is a much kind of cleaner, safer part of the city. Um, and then when I was starting high school, we moved to Miami in Florida. Um, in and So this is in the 80s at this point, very different from New York. And I actually had my first depression episode after that move. Um, right in the start of high school. And um, it was at a time of a lot of uh, inquiry for me about sort of um, what's the point of it all, you know? Right. Uh, just the teenage angst for me was something that was informed heavily by Hermann Hesse and reading a lot of his work and Camus, which I don't think I really understood, but mm. I liked it a lot. <laughs> and then I went to college in California I uh, took a couple of years off, traveled through China and Tibet and Xinjiang, and then um, started graduate school back in Miami in the 90s. And I've been here ever since. But, you know, grief has been, um, grief and trauma for me have been just part of the air I've breathed um, for a couple of reasons. One is that my mother survived the partition of the subcontinent in 1947, mm-hmm. um, where she was um how she used to describe it is that she lived in a pluralistic society, a very multicultural, very accepting, warm, loving society, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, um, a sprinkling of Christians probably also. Um, They lived together, literally together. They celebrated their festivals at each other's homes. Um, It was a very open and, and she just had the fondest memories of it until, um, the end of the colonization period and there was suddenly this push towards religious identification Mm. and when her family left their home which was on the pakistani side of the border but her being from a hindu family they found that they were not very welcome suddenly Mm -hmm. in their own home Um, her parents and her brother did not survive that journey and so uh, it was very traumatic for her to witness their death on a train in the context of a religious massacre. Yeah. And she was about 12 years old and uh, was in charge of her younger sister and brother as they sort of went from that traumatic night um, back home and then eventually to a refugee camp where her brother came to kind of fetch her and mm-hmm. her siblings. And so um, I found that, you know, growing up, for whatever reason, most of my friends, a lot of my friends, um, a lot of the people I knew were Jewish. And it only, not my best friends, but most of the people I talked to were Jewish. And I realized that I could really relate to them because a lot of them were grandkids of Holocaust survivors. Right. Or at that point, some of them were children of Holocaust survivors. And so it was kind of this, uh, this soup that we all lived in. And, um, you know, from a very young age, I knew that there was real evil in the world mm-hmm. and real suffering in the world. And that loss, that loss that my mother experienced of not just her parents and her brother, although that's like the main thing, um, mm-hmm. um, but just the loss of that sense of community, that loss of place. And then through the whole path of immigration that I went through and just moving around a lot. Yeah. It was also just this, um, I mean, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I didn't go to a school for more than three years at the same time until I got to college. Mm. And um, 
So, you know, it took me a while to kind of appreciate that. Maybe that's why I really enjoy talking to people, you know, because it's something I had to do. I had to learn languages, um, not just the English language, but how to talk to people and what is the language that they speak in terms of their emotional landscape, their inner worlds and what makes them tick. Um, And, you know, it wasn't idyllic. Like I said, it it triggered a a massive depression in me in high school. Nothing I have to be hospitalized for, but I think it was more of like an existential distress that I had and a general malaise of kind of the superficialness of, you know, really kids around me who couldn't relate to that. And I think that's something I found in New York City was that there's, it's such a multicultural place. There's so much history there of what families have been through that even though we haven't experienced loss directly ourselves, Mm. it's there in our ancestors. And it's there in our personal histories. They've all experienced incredible things. And how we're raised in our families, a lot of that is informed by how our ancestors navigated trauma and loss, displacement, you know, um, especially for those of us who have settled in North America, you know, uh, (laughs) even if it was, you know, even if our ancestors came to this land five, six generations ago, something brought them here to get on a boat and risk their lives to, to come here. Right. And for those of us whose ties to this land go back thousands of years, there's a lot of displacement very recently and loss there also, Hmm. you know? um, Yeah. Um, That, that intergenerational trauma that can be kind of hard to put our finger on sometime uh, because it's not our own experience, but, comes from our parents or our grandparents or further back. Um, it, it sounds like that had a big influence on you and shaping you as, as a human being, as the person who, that your view of the world. Um, can you, can you share a bit more about how that shaped you, uh, your, your relationship with your mother or maybe managing that trauma within yourself and trying to make sense of it? Was there, you know, a particular moment or two that really um, impacted you early on in your life? Well, there's a couple of things about my mom that really um, continue to teach me. Um, she was an incredible person. I mean, really, she was just one of the most incredible people I've ever met. And obviously I'm biased, but other people agree <laughs> okay. too. You can be totally biased on this topic. <laughs> other people agree also. One thing that I really that stands out was that as a kid, you know, I would say something like, Oh, I hate this TV show. And she was just like, that was a really big deal for her. And she would stop and say, don't say hate. Mm. That's too strong a word. You shouldn't say hate. And I'd be like, it's just a TV show. (laughs) What's wrong with saying I hate this TV show. Mm -hmm. And I realized like she wouldn't be laughing about it. It was, this was a really serious matter for her. And she was like, don't let hate into your heart. Mm. And I think part of that was just, she had seen the consequences of it, of people that she had trusted that turned on her. Yeah. And uh, as a society, what happened when people let hate in? Right. And, um, you know, one thing that resulted from that she never said it. She didn't have to say it, but there was just this 
profound level of forgiveness and compassion that she just radiated. Um, mm. And I'm not sure that that's, I mean, maybe it is, but I'm not sure that that level of love is possible without so much pain, mm. without having gone through so much pain. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think from her experience kind of building on what you just said there allowed her to create that forgiveness within herself. And, um, cause that's not easy to do, especially if you've no. seen what you've seen. Yeah. Part of it is, I think she just cultivated the spiritual life. Um, it was one of the, the ties to her childhood was the prayers that my grandmother would sing with her and that they would go to a temple together. Um, and I think she was so repulsed by violence and hatred in any form that, you know, human love, the, the love that we have as human beings can be incredible, but divine love is even more powerful. You know, mm -hmm. that's just pure lightning. And so that's, I think, how she nourished herself because she didn't have her mother or her father. Right. Um, she just didn't have her that she had been killed in front of her. She was not there for her. And so I think she had to kind of go to divine love. You know, she had extended family that was very caring for her, but you know, there's nothing like a mother's love. Yeah. Uh, I know that, you know, <laughs> from my own mother. Um, and I think she just went to that place of divine love, which is unconditional and really strove to, to embody that as much as she could. I mean, she wasn't perfect. She got into a bad mood. She, you know, mm -hmm. she would get angry, but, um, I think that was just sort of part of the package was this divine love was so strong that everything, it, it could cover everything. It could ultimately cover everything, the pain, the trauma, all of it. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, what it taught me, is that um, <clears throat> the most horrific sufferings that we can experience, we have to address them. Hmm. We just have to address them. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's, I mean, we can go off on this, this line right here into the world of... Yeah. of um, you know, finding comfort and loving kindness for ourselves. And I think we'll, we'll touch on it when we talk about mindfulness and, and how you work with your, your patients around it. Um, but just to tie a bow on the kind of the origin story piece, you, you, you focus in that intersection of grief and mindfulness with your patients and um, in, in your career. Um, and I'm just curious, how, how did you get into the world of, of grief? So um, I became interested in, uh, I mean, this is, again, so much has to do with my mother. Um, she kind of cultivated this, this uh, library of teachers and books and experiences. Um, so we, there would always be some spiritual teacher passing through town and somehow or the other, they'd wind up eating dinner at our house. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> My parents were phenomenal cooks. They're phenomenal cooks. Ah, amazing. And so, you know, once somebody came to dinner, they would want to come back. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I think awesome. it was also for the company. Yeah. 
So I had always had this like this dual split interest between spirituality and psychology. And um, when I was in college, I went to college in Santa Cruz in California, which in the 80s, it was still in the late 80s, it was still in the blast radius of kind of the, the 60s. And a lot of the cultural changes that had happened in the 60s in Santa Cruz were not just in the area of ecology and psychedelics, but also the hospice movement got mm. a really big start in Santa Cruz. And with Ram Dass and Stephen Levine, they did some of their earliest work in Santa Cruz. Right. And so there was still this sort of, um, and this was in the, this was during the AIDS crisis. I have to kind of throw that in there. So there were still a lot of people who were doing forward thinking hospice work around people who are going through AIDS mm. in, in Santa Cruz in the Bay area. So when I was in college, I just sort of had that seed planted in me that when I got to graduate school, um, to study psychology more formally, that I would do a rotation in end of life kind of training. And I thought I would do it for like a year just as part of the training and it would kind of deepen my sense of being. And then, you know, I could apply those insights to other things like maybe family systems therapy or anxiety or something like that. Lo and behold, about um, a month or two into the practicum, I I simultaneously experienced two things, incredible emotional pain about what I was bearing witness to Mm -hmm. and a deep conviction that I had not felt up until that point that I could not imagine doing anything else Mm -hmm. with my career choices. Like I, whatever I needed to do to stay in this field, I had to do it. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was a click. I mean, it was an almost audible click. Like it just clicked in me. My supervisors noted it too. Um, I had requested that I go on rounds every morning with the palliative care physician and my psychology supervisor. And it was, this was at a cancer center. She was like, um, we've been running this practicum for a while. Nobody's ever asked to do that. Mm. And to me, it was kind of a no brainer. Like you have a palliative care doctor. This is in the late nineties. They weren't really ubiquitous. It's like, there's a palliative care physician in this cancer center. Why would, why would you skip training with that? Like it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And me and him got along incredibly well. He had a reading list that he handed me and I looked at the reading list and I was like, I've already read these. And he was like, really? (laughs) I was like, yeah, these are my favorite books. (laughs) He was like, we're going to get along really well. And that was about 22 years ago. We're still working together, (laughs) me and him. Wow. Um, So part of it, I think was, this opportunity, part of it, I think for me was this opportunity that, you know, my grandparents were not allowed to die with dignity. They died Mm -hmm. violently. And I had an opportunity here to really facilitate a peaceful transition. It, It wasn't always going to be peaceful, but I could maybe contribute towards it being more peaceful and more pleasant or less distressing. And what I started to see was that um, because of the placement and the mechanics of it, I was able to work with people who were going through very bad diseases, very bad conditions, their caregivers, and then assist their caregivers transition to the bereaved, Mm. transition into their grief. And there's a continuity there, you know, and I think it's something that comes from 
my interest in spirituality, they have been heavy on the heavy, heavily oriented towards Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I've been practicing Tibetan Buddhism for about 25 years now. And um, there is this kind of reverence um, and honoring of mortality, Mm. of how precious and impermanent life is. And just starting and you know, there, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong about being sick. There's nothing wrong about suffering. That for me is the essence. One of the essences of Buddhist practice is that we start from there. That's not something that happens to us. That's not something that's a flaw. That's the human condition. It's temporary. It's impermanent. It goes by incredibly fast. And suffering is just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I think that's such a important insight that often it's just staring us in the f- in the face when you look at impermanence it's it's everywhere um you know uh, we're always facing change our our bodies are changing every day our our relationships are evolving whether it's through us or through others um at some point you know I, we're so um afraid of loss as a society that we do everything to ignore it or try to distract ourselves from it. But I think that actually takes us away from our embodied experience that we're having when we can't marry that. It's impermanence is, is part of who we are. It's, it's our, it's our mission to understand it. Um, It's the rule. It's the rules of the game right? Like 100%. when it declares itself, we're kind of like, Oh, what did I do wrong? Oh, it must've been this thing that I, you know, this, this bad relationship or this stressful job, or, you know, the fact that I smoked or it could right. be the fact that you smoked, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's definitely <laughs> right. a cause. Right. Or, you know, I, mean, I should have eaten better. I should. Yep. Yeah. But you know what? It could be no reason at all. Just mm-hmm. existence itself is the cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when we do face those moments of loss, which will happen, grief is part of that journey. It's an emotion we will feel. Um, Maybe we can take a moment uh, for you to just, uh, if you can define grief for us, um, I think that would be kind of a helpful lay of the land and how grief shows up in different ways as well. Sure. Um, Yeah. Sure. Yeah, grief happens after loss. Um, Grief is something that we experience after change. And one thing I've come to appreciate after my mother died um, that perhaps didn't make it into my books in time, uh, I think I have said that grief is total, but it it is really total. It affects every system, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, financially, financially. bureaucratically um but of the of that list um the physical part is the part that i think is under under reported you know under under discussed it's not appreciated as much as just how physically painful grief can be um can you talk a little bit more about that when you say physically how does it show up um well, one of my patients sent me a picture many years ago and i forget the artist's name but um, they do these statues that are filled with stones, these human 
it's like a frame, a metal frame. Um, I think the name is Cairns, but I'm not completely sure. Uh, there are these stones, uh, there's these human frames that are built out of metal and inside they're filled with stones. Mm-hmm. And she sent me that because she was like, you know, I think this is what I'm feeling. And I was like, that's exactly what grief feels like. Mm. You know, it's inflammatory. Like a lot of stressful conditions, grief is incredibly inflammatory. Um, physical aches and pains, bowel changes, sleep changes, um, you know, all these things that are just uh, appetite, the satiety signal just disappearing. So you're either not hungry at all or eating nonstop. Mm. You know, there's just no satiety signal uh, anymore at all. The achiness of it, the, the, the muscle cramps, bone ache, joint pain, all of those things, um, it's total. It's total. And, you know, it's accompanying and interdependent with the emotional sadness of it also. And, you know, what a lot of people, um, what I think our society pushes a lot of people to think is that uh, two things about grief is that one is that it's only after death. Mm -hmm. And two, um, it's something that we can fix and cure. And we can just sort of, you know, we'll be better on the other end of it. Right. So let's unpack those things. Uh, Grief happens whenever there's change. So this pandemic, different parts of the world, I'm in, I'm in South Florida right now. So we mm-hmm. have the dubious distinction of being number one yeah. um, in terms of coronavirus cases. Um, there's been so many changes to people with the pandemic and with quarantine and just job losses and school changes and just so many things. It's just an amplifier for everything that was working and everything that wasn't working as a society, as families, as individuals, as, as groups. Um, there's a lot of grief in that. Yeah. There's a lot of grief in that. We've kind of lost a sense of certainty that I would argue was not accurate, but it felt good. Right. You know, like we had the sense of stability And one thing that working with people going through cancer for the last 20 years has taught me is that our minds are all wired for stability. They're not wired for well-being. They're not Mm -hmm. wired for happiness. They're wired for stability. Hmm. And when we lose that sense of stability, it is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. We enter a state of freefall. What uh, Chogyam Trungpa, I think so accurately uh, once he put it this way, um, uh, the bad news is you've fallen out of an airplane. The good news is there's no ground. And right. that that's the space of grief. Mm-hmm. That free fall is the space of grief. Um, and that can happen in any different ways in our lives. A bad breakup can do it. A job loss can do it. Immigration can do it. A yeah. diagnosis can do it. Um, so the other thing is, is that the other aspect of it that society teaches us is that, and this is especially in the language of, of the news and the media, mm-hmm. grief is something we get through and we get over it and we're better people on the other side of it. What I've seen is very different from that. What I see is that grief becomes a part of who we are. Hmm. It becomes our identity. At first, it may be our entire identity, but after a while, it becomes part of our identity. Um, it occupies the space where stability used to be. Mm-hmm. And whether that stability was a parent, a spouse, a child, a family member, a good friend, um, somebody we looked up to in the culture who passed away, um, grief occupies the stability that that person, that relationship occupied. That may never go away. 
you know? And for a lot of people that seems like, Oh, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you still feeling? Why do you still have feelings for this, that, or the other? Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just the way it is. It's just the way grief is. You know, if we, if we start with the assumption that suffering is just part of the package, yeah, then there's a lot less blame to assign when we suffer. Like this is just part of the deal. Right. This is just part of the deal. You know, like, yeah. like having skin or having bones. Like, oh yeah, they're suffering too. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that is one part that's really hard to do. Yes. <laughs> to, to realize suffering is part of our lives because we don't want to feel negative feelings. Yeah. And we do everything to push it away. But what you're you're saying, and I, I believe it as well, is is it's we have to call it a friend. We have to let it in. And and I know in Buddhism there's the story of Mara and the Buddha inviting Mara for tea, you know, yeah. the, the fear, the the lust, the anger, the sadness, the grief. And sitting with it as if you're just yeah. across from it, from, for, you know, with a cup of tea. Yeah. Um, how do we do that in our society today? Like, it's so hard, you know, because you said we're wired towards stability. We want things to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is, I'm skipping steps here, but I'm just really curious. How, how do we create more comfort with grief? Well, that's where the mindfulness parts come in. Um, because, you know, I think most people who practice meditation and especially mindfulness or Vipassana styles of meditation or um, shamatha, uh, you know, all of those kinds of awareness of the breath modalities, mm-hmm. what they'll tell you is that it can gradually change your life, but maybe not. <laughs> you mm. know? Like you need to do it. You need to do it regularly because the effects aren't permanent. Everything is impermanent, including meditation. Um, so I, I do really try to speak out against the language that we used to describe grief as getting over and getting through and moving on. Those phrases just drive me bananas. Yeah. Um, yeah, some people do, but a lot of people don't. And it, it kind of ties into this uh, rejection of suffering, which is impossible to do. Um, so I think what happens is that what I feel happens, what, I, what I've what i experienced happening personally and professionally is that um, when grief manifests in whatever way it's going to manifest, whatever ways it's going to manifest, we develop what's called, um, it's a skill set we all have called a secondary emotional process. These are our feelings about our feelings. Mm. Our feelings aren't controllable. You know, they, they happen. They're almost like our instincts and they happen very quickly, um, faster than thought. Mm -hmm. Our secondary emotional processes, which are our feelings about our feelings. That's where a lot of the damage gets done, Mm -hmm. you know? So when we're feeling depressed, for instance, when we're feeling sadness, how do we hold that? If we hold the sadness within anger, if we hold the sadness within sadness, you know, now we're talking about layers and layers of emotions building up. What the literature on mindfulness meditation teaches us is that this is exactly what mindfulness meditation can do. Scrape off that secondary layer. 
maybe not permanently, but at least during the session, it makes us aware that there's layers of emotions, not just one. We're safe with the one. One feeling is safe. But once we start kind of piling weights on top of it, Mm. it becomes too big to carry. And so what mindfulness allows us to do, and it sounds really weird, sit with your pain and sit with your suffering, sit with the distress, which is very different from what a lot of people think meditation is about. But I think that that's what meditation is for. That's where it becomes, that's where it transforms from something pleasant and relaxing to medicine. Yeah. You know, it is medicine. It it was developed as medicine and it, it is medicine for suffering, not to make it go away, but to make it safe. Yeah. With the patients that you work with or, you know, people in, in your life that you talk about mindfulness and work through the grief and emotions that they're feeling, how, how do you help them find the courage to, to sit with the emotions? Because even just doing mindfulness, like sitting there is, is yeah. scary if you know what's going to come at you, right? Yeah. 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 So um, almost everybody will start with just breath awareness, just simple belly breathing, um, just making them, making people aware that their breathing can have a profound effect on their consciousness and on their emotional realities, on their stress response. And what I'll do is just kind of break it down that, you know, just about everybody I'm meeting is either going through cancer treatment or bearing witness to somebody going through cancer treatment. Yeah. So the courage part's already taken care of, you know? Um, yeah. Because they're, they're, the they're in it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're in the mess of things. They're facing it, yeah. Yeah. And so just kind of educating what happens with the stress response. Your thoughts start racing. Your breathing is shallow. Your appetite changes. You might feel shaky and numb and cold. Um, you may feel restless with your mouth dry. You may have bowel changes. All of these things make sense to people who are having incredible amounts of stress. And the these things are happening automatically. It's not like people are like, you know, I wonder, wonder uh, if ruminating all night will help. I think I'm going to try that tonight. Like it, it, these things just happen automatically. Nobody wants to feel this way, yeah. but they happen automatically. And so just kind of giving people the foothold that, you know, what you're experiencing is the stress response. It's very predictable. It, it's not failure. This is what the mind is designed to do. It's designed to keep the body safe by being focused on danger and fear because that's where the danger and fear are, right? This is, it's stress is not a failure. It's exactly what we're designed to experience to keep us alive. You know, chilled out people were eaten by tigers. You know, when the tiger would walk into the village, the person who was just like, Oh, Hey, look at that beautiful tiger. I think I'm going to sit with a tiger. Yeah. Tiger's belly is a real nice warm place. Now, you know, (laughs) the people who got stressed out survived. And they're the reason that we are alive today. Those were our ancestors. They were really good at stress. So just kind of educating people that the stress response is something that we're experiencing. It's a technology that's wired into our bodies. And just as it has an on switch, it also has an off switch. And most people appreciate the fact that you can't think your way out of stress, but it's creating the conditions in the body that feed back into the brain that say, you know what? Yeah, things are really bad right now, but this moment is maybe bearable. Maybe bearable. Not great. Maybe bearable. Maybe bearable. It may be bearable. And just breathing 
just breathing through the belly, uh, doing four, seven, eight, or any of these structured breathing techniques very quickly will diminish the stress response. And it may turn it off, but it, at the very least, it'll diminish it. Um, I try to do that at the end of the first session with people. So that by the time our time is done together, they're leaving in pretty good shape. You know, they've kind of purged verbally. They've purged the challenges that they're facing. And then we can kind of clear out some of the stress in the body. And, uh, and I'll just teach them the breathing, the breath awareness, not meditation, not mindfulness. I'm not trying to sell them anything like that. I want them to feel better. Yeah. And the next couple of times I might say, you know what, those breathing te- universally almost I hear is those breathing techniques were really helpful. I didn't think they would be, but man, I, I've been doing them and they really do help. And at that point I'll say, you know what, they'll help even more if you carve out five or 10 minutes and just start training your body how to do this. Yeah. And for me, it's it, the emphasis over the last several years has been to teach meditation as a physical technique, not as a mental one, but as a physical one that mm-hmm. has mental side effects. And because what a lot of people say is that, you know, meditation doesn't work. My mind doesn't clear. Mm-hmm. And like, no, it's not going to clear. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> There's too much going on. Right. It's the nature of the mind. It's not going to clear. Um but if we can create the conditions in the body, it can feel safe and, you know, a little yep. more bearable. Yep. I love that. You mentioned um, four, seven, eight as the yeah. breathing technique that you teach. Can you yeah. explain that? Sure. Us? Yeah. It's inhaling for a count of four, mm-hmm. holding it for a count of seven and exhaling for a count of eight. Mm-hmm. And that's a structured breathing technique. Um, when I, when I teach belly breathing, I also teach people to start counting the exhalations serially one at a time. Um, you know, this is something from, uh, from, from India that was learned very early is that if you give your mind an anchor in the breath, whether it's a mantra practice or uh, keeping track of numbers in a row, it tends to crystallize the in, inner chatter, mm-hmm. our own internal verbalizations they kind of get coalesced around the breath, around awareness of the breath. And so, you know, how I've taught it to people is that, you know, if you tell your dog to stay off the couch, it's going to jump on the couch. But if you give your dog something else to chew on, it's going to chew on that and it'll stay off the couch. Yeah. So it's giving the mind something else to do. It's assigning it another task. You lose count, you start over. It's really not that big a deal. You know, you lose count a hundred times, you start over a hundred and one. Right. Right. And um, not to be, granular here, but I think this is mm-hmm. such a great starting point for, for anybody just trying to connect with their body again. Yeah. Um, how, how many rounds do you do? How long do you kind of do this for? Let's say you're going into a stressful situation or you're going into work or whatever it is you're starting the day. What, how many yeah. rounds do you go through typically? So um, for me, what my cues are um, whenever well, I'm doing telehealth now because we're in the middle of the pandemic, Whenever I'm starting a session, whether that is um, in the good old days, in the days to come, if that was, you know, bringing somebody into my office or entering a patient's room, um, those doorways or that door handle would be a cue to me to start being aware of my breath. Yeah. Am I taking belly breaths? Um, and really, any time that somebody is... Um, experiencing intense emotions in session in front of me is a reminder for me also. Um, You know, I still have to catch myself after all these years that right now, possibly 
probably what's needed is a witness to -hmm. the suffering and the solutions can be found. But right now what we need to do is just bear witness. And there's comfort in that because a lot of people feel when their suffering is so intense, so crushing, so total that it'll be too much for somebody to to take. And what winds up happening is that when they're trying to talk to a friend or family member, we interrupt them and we say, you know, don't worry. I'm sure the doctor has something planned. I'm sure we can take care of this. And I could say those things. They may be accurate, but I think what people really want to feel is that these intense emotions are, are bearable. They can be witnessed without the solution being like sort of, you know, hey, turn that off. You know, that's just reinforcing that secondary layer that, you know, you really should be uncomfortable around this sadness because it's, it's just not very convenient, you know? Yeah. Um, So it's, you know, I, I feel that therapy or at least my senses is that therapy is um, it mimics mindfulness in many ways, you know, Mm. that we can kind of create this unconditional ground where everything is safe to express and we'll find solutions if solutions can be found. Um, but really the most important thing is to feel safe. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this so much good stuff there that we can keep going for a long, long time. Um, but I think there's a, another kind of practical piece that maybe you can talk uh, briefly about around um, how do we be, how can we be around people who are grieving um, small grief, big grief? Uh, you know, you mentioned don't not jumping in and saying, get rid of this is probably not a good thing to do, but what, how, how should we be with others who are grieving? It's challenging. It's very challenging. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about uh, in the book and that I've really tried to encourage people to understand is that we can't really use cookie cutter approaches. Everybody goes through it differently. And so, you know, even within a family, a parent dies, all the siblings may have completely different reactions to it. And, you know, there's no one size fits all approach. Um, I would suggest that where a lot of convergence takes place is to just reach out. Mm. If somebody wants to be left alone, they'll be left alone. Um, What I've heard about and definitely what I see a lot is that there's this almost like there's a need that a lot of us have to be helpful. Right. And when somebody doesn't take us up on it, it's kind of like, Hey, (laughs) I called. Why don't you call me back? It's like, um, (laughs) I was falling into my pillow and didn't want to make a phone call because I've been crying for 23 hours. Mm -hmm. You know, it very quickly becomes, you know, I'm the helpful person here. Why aren't you letting me be the helpful person? Right. And, you know, we have to be careful not to fall into that. And um, I think we have to be careful not to promise things that can't be heard. You know, um, a lot of good intentions come across as really stupid comments that people make. Um, You know, you'll meet somebody else. You have other children. Yeah, don't worry. You're still young. You can still get out there. And there's plenty of fish in the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, Those kinds of things. Uh, You know, oh, yeah, you're 
your spouse was a jerk anyway. I never liked him. I mean, these are all things that I've heard people say after death, after loss. And it just, it can be a deal breaker for certain friendships to continue. Right. And it's that drive we have of like, you know, it's not that bad. You know, we don't want you to suffer. I don't want, I don't want to see somebody I care about suffering. So I'm just going to pretend that it's not that bad mm-hmm. by saying these comments or by saying this. And really, I think what a lot of people want is a safe space to be wherever they're at. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, there's no cookie cutter approaches. So there's just no easy answers. I think a big part of it is to just make yourself available. Yeah. Don't expect a showered person to show up on time for a meal, you know, and express appreciation. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that, that's a good start. Um, bring food over, mm-hmm. you know, but don't expect to sit. Don't, don't expect that it's going to get eaten in front of you. Um, preferably healthy food, you know, but something that makes people happy also. Um, I think it's a case by case basis, honestly. And what a lot of people tell me is that it's the people that kept checking up on them Mm. with messages like, Hey, you don't need to call me back. I just wanted to let you know, I was thinking about you and you know, my heart goes out to you. I know this is a big day. Just thinking about you, that kind of stuff. And you may not get a response for a long time, but please keep trying. Please keep trying. The phone does stop ringing at some point. The text messages stop coming. Um, Social media is a minefield, you know. Um, So I would say just try to be persistent. And unless somebody says, you know what, I please stop, (laughs) you know, and then respect that. Try not to take it personally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just, Just saying I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I love that. And um, in so many situations you can be, you don't have to wear the Superman cape. You can just be right. that friend who is there. Um, yeah. Oh man, we can, we can talk for a long time, but we're, we're yeah. running out of time. And, and um, maybe if, if, if you've got some time later on, we could do a part two of this, but for this conversation, I just want to wrap it up with sure. um, a couple of questions that I typically ask my guests. Um, sure. One, one of them being the, 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 the podcast is called the Ikigai project because at the end I always ask my guests, you know, what's, what's your reason for being, what's, what's the reason you wake up in the morning? And um, I'm curious for you, what, mm. what's your Ikigai? Why, why do you do this every day? Um, wow. I can't help it. <laughs> I think that's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, I can't stand to see people lost like this, lost in the, in the, in the suffering of it all. Um, you know, for me, there's, there's just this sense that um, human existence is uh, incredibly wonderful, precious, and rare and so horrible at the same time Mm. that I think that the most noble way to spend the short time that we have together on this planet, this is try to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. um, In whatever way we can. Yep. Yep. I love that. Um, For, for those of uh, us listening who have been really inspired by what you're doing and you're talking about, um, 
how can they keep in touch with you? How can they learn more about your work and um, some of the, yeah, the, some of the resources that you've created in this space of grieving and, and mindfulness? Sure. Um, well, my, I have a social media presence uh, on Facebook. I'm reluctant to say that. Instagram, Twitter, um, it's all just my name, Samit Kumar. Um, I have a website, but I don't really pay attention to it a whole lot, to be honest. Um, I've been really busy um, with the pandemic, uh, really busy. I'm trying to keep blogging um, on Medium or on my own um, on my own blog, just trying to get these ideas out there. Um, of course, there's my books, Grieving Mindfully, The Mindful Path Through Worry and Rumination. Those are on Amazon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm most reachable uh, through any of those mediums. And if people want to kind of follow up uh, my email, you can get to me through social media and we can have a more involved conversation that way. Um, I can give my email out on that. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Having listened to your book, uh, Grieving Mindfully, I have discovered things about grief that I would have never touched on just because it's just such a topic that feels like comes with a lot of baggage, but it's, it's actually a fundamental part of, of life. And I yeah. really appreciate the work that you do to put it into our daily conversation, to normalize it, to find the kindness to, to be with it. I think that's, we could, we could use a lot more of that. So um, Samit, thank you so much for the time and the conversation. I hope people who are listening can continue to learn more about your work uh, and the places that you shared that we'll include in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, thank, thank you, you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the listeners for sticking it out. <laughs> I'm sure right. they're really excited too. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at herehue.bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care of now, everyone. <laughs>